0: My name is David Ball. I'm a member here at Redeemer. Kind of cozy from, from what we're used to. So I'm going to warn you, this really feels like my high school classroom, so I may be tempted to call on you on an impromptu fashion, ask you a critical thinking question. Don't worry. I usually only call on those who appear to not be paying attention, so you're probably fine. Did you ever read a book... Or is there a book that you have read many times over and over again? Or a movie that you've seen that whenever it's on, you always tune into it? When I was thinking about how to open this message, I asked Jane about this, and she asked her, how long, many times have you read Pride and Prejudice? And she said twice, which I thought was amazing because it's required reading at Avon High School. Whenever I see a student reading Pride and Prejudice, I always go up and say, oh, my, my wife loves that book, and they're just like, oh. you know, it's torture, Right. <laughs> And then I asked her how many times she'd seen the movie. And she said, oh, five or six, which is, you know, for Pride and Prejudice, I think quite a few. And then I asked her how many times she'd seen We've Got Mail. You've Got Mail. What's the name of the movie? You've Got Mail. She said ten. I think that's a conservative estimate, to be honest with you. Now, when I grew up, I grew up in the 60s and early 70s, I know, okay, And at that time, movies on television were a huge event, okay? We did not have DVRs. We did not have DVDs. We did not have on-demand Netflix, VCRs, any of this stuff. So when the movie was on, you had to watch it then, okay? One of the big events was The Wizard of Oz, and the coolest thing about The Wizard of Oz was it was made right when Technicolor first came out. So the first part of the movie, right, is in black and white, and then when Dorothy lands in Oz, everything turns to color. Unless your parents had not yet bought a color TV, which my parents did not do till I left for college. They're still a little bitter about it. So when the house landed, my TV went from black and white to a different shade of black and white. So I'd never really experienced that. Another movie when I was young that was always on right around Easter was The Ten Commandments. Do you remember this? Four and a half hours of Charles Heston and Yul Brynner overacting. I mean, back then it was acting, okay, but now it would probably be overacting okay i don't think we're we're in a different time with all of the technology and as i said netflix and on demand and all of this and all of the stations we have i think a lot of times what we do is we just turn tune into a particular scene of a movie right uh one of my favorite scenes is in gladiator right uh uh, russell crowe the general for the roman army did not bow down to the new emperor the new emperor had his wife and son killed and he was supposed to be killed but he escapes and ends up becoming a slave gladiator, eventually comes back to the Roman arena where the emperor is, unbeknownst to the emperor, still alive. He fights this great battle and wins. And the emperor wants to know who this great warrior is. So he goes down to the arena and he says, gladiator, show me your, tell me your name. And I've seen Russell, Russell Crowe turns around and takes off the mask. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north. General of the Felix Legions loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius father to a murdered son husband to a murdered wife and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next I thought he did that pretty good did I rush it I feel like I rushed it a little bit <laughs> Okay Or the scene in Braveheart, right? The Scottish army is about to take the battlefield against the awesome English army, and they all want to run away when they see the army. And Mel Gibson with the face paint makes that great speech about, you know, really, we want to fight. Do you want to be lying in your bed years from now and not have had the opportunity, right? That scene, or a few good men, you can't handle the truth. Karate kid. I practiced that. Karate kid. But I think, why is it? Why is it that we can relive these movie scenes over and over and over again? And and I think it's because when we do, uh, we re-experience the emotion uh, that we felt at the time. I know when I asked Jane about it, uh, about Pride and Prejudice, without even asking her really, she just said, I get lost in the language, right? Right? Or sometimes when we when we see a movie or a scene again, we kind of remember something uh, that we had forgotten or we see something new, right? We watched It's a Wonderful Life this week, right? Because it's Christmas, it's in America, and you have to. And Brian made the comment, every time I see this movie, there, there, there's something new. And my experience with Scripture is that I have a lot of those same experiences, right? We just you know went through the Christmas season, and I think there's been four or five times uh, you know, we did it here at Redeemer and, and other Christmas programs we've gone to where we reread those prophecies from Isaiah and then we reread the Luke account that, that Linus of the Charlie Brown fame does so well, you know. Yeah, it's good, right? And, and we feel that, that same emotion. And then there's times when, when I'm reading scripture. And I've read the book of Acts, I don't know, at least a half a dozen times. I know I've studied it. I think I've even taught it once. But Jane and I are kind of reading in our morning devotions. We do a little scripture reading and pray a little before we start our day. And we've been reading through the book of Acts. And there's stuff in there. I don't remember that. Or that's kind of interesting and weird and and, and cool. So in in my study of late, uh, there's been one thing that's kind of been coming back to me over and over again uh, and we're going to look at that, that text in a minute, and what it has done for me, it has helped me to do something we talk about a lot here, and that's preach the gospel to myself. If you've been here for any time at all, you know, that's kind of one of our mantras, that in our lives, what we need to do is be continually reminding ourselves of the gospel, of what Christ did for us, so that, you know, when we're in a situation, you know, like if, if Jane and I are, are, are not as connected as we want to be, and you know, those of you who are married know it's not roses all the time, Right? but that I remember the grace that God extended to me, and I extend that, that grace to here. Or, you know, right now we're trying to, to raise these funds for Redeemer and Banneker, and when I think about, okay, you know, what what should I give? That I, I I preach that gospel to myself, and I remember the price that was paid for me when I think about it, right? So there was something that came along that I've been studying recently, and so Chris, you know, a couple of months ago gave, gave me a heads up, hey, you know, I, I'd like you to fill in for a week, and he's great about that, giving us a heads up, and I'm trying to think about, well, wh- what are we going to talk about, because we're not in the middle of one of our series, right? So I wasn't assigned something, which is kind of cool, right? I get to talk about what I want to, and I'm like talking to the Holy Spirit, and I'm like, what do you think? You know, this has really impacted my life, but is that really something you'd, you'd want me to speak to the congregation about? And the first thing the Holy Spirit said to me is, Dave, you're not special which I thought was kind of harsh to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit's kind of like, you know, you're a regular guy. You like sports. You you like you a good ribeye now and again. You go to work. You love your wife. You like being with family. You know, you've got some quirks, we know, the OCD thing, the sock drawer sorted by style, color, and usage. But other than that, you're, you know, so if if it's going to apply to you, it's probably going to apply to everyone else. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a passage in Scripture, where Jesus tells a parable, a fairly simple story. But this story is just chock full of details that are important to us, preaching the gospel to ourselves. I'm not going to look at all of those. We don't have that kind of time. But I want to look at one important detail. So if you would, please stand with me. We're going to be in Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible, there are gray Bibles throughout the room. Pick one up. It's on page 747. And we're going to start in verse 20b. I know, 20b, which would make me uncomfortable because of the OCD thing, but that's where we're starting. Okay, 747, there we go. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he said to him, "'Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound.' But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, "'Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends.'" But when this son of yours came, and he has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father God, as we look into your teaching this morning, uh, may our hearts be open Uh, May the words I say be your words, may your spirit just work in this room and in our hearts uh, that we might uh, just step up our ability uh, to be in tune with your gospel, to be in tune with you, uh, just to walk with you every day. Father, we just ask that uh, you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what's the name of the parable? It's a parable of what? the prodigal son right most of us know it most of us have heard it most of us have heard a message on it uh, at some time before Uh, this is not only something familiar to us in the church but it's probably one of the most known passages by unbelievers or outside the church Uh, in the middle ages when artists had you know 30 some odd parables of christ to choose from there were four that they focused on this was one of them Uh, During the Renaissance, this was a very popular subject of Renaissance artists. I'd, I'd name some of them for you, but I'd mess it up and then one of our art students would call me on it later. So let's just say any Renaissance artist worth his salt did a painting on the prodigal son. Most of them would involve the time when the prodigal son returned to the father. There were a few of them that represented the period of time when he was living, in, uh, he was, you know, in reckless living, as the, as the passage says. And one in particular by Garrett von Honthorst, which I think we have here, uh, depicts this, and he strategically placed a mandolin, which I think it was important for me to be able to use this particular slide. You'll get it later. You'll see it later. Um, But even in modern times, uh, modern musicians, this is a subject that has been embraced. The great theologian Mick Jagger and his acolytes, The Rolling Stones, did a song on this, as did Iron Maiden and Kid Rock. Uh, In doing my research, though, I think the most interesting rendition has to be by the group Bad Religion. Never heard of them. Apparently on their 14th album... Never heard of these people, which ironically is made, named New Maps to Hell. They did a rendition of it. Okay, we're still waiting for the Wilco interpretation. See what I did there? See what I did there? Okay. Uh, but, you know, this is a, this is a, a parable that, that everybody's familiar with. And what I really like um, about the parables that Jesus taught, as, as I have read Scripture over the years, uh, early on I read it as a seeker. I have read it as a follower of Christ. And now I, I read it as a teacher, you know, because Jesus and I, my man, have got the same profession. We're both teachers, right? And I'm always amazed at, at his teaching. And this, and this parable in particular does everything. I mean, it's relevant. Uh, he doesn't use a lot of words when a few will do. He leaves you thinking. Um, he has multiple lessons and multiple layers. I mean, it, it, it's just brilliant. But there's one thing I want to look at today. And in order to do so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the liberty of renaming the parable. Tim Keller did an excellent little book on this, from which I borrowed some of his information, full disclosure. He renamed the parable the two sons. I'm going to rename the parable, the parable of two sons and a father. Because what I want to do this morning is first look at the relationship that the sons had with the father, that the sons chose to have with the father. And then want to look at the reaction of the father, both what the father actually did in reacting to his two sons and compare that to perhaps what everybody would have expected him to do. So that's where we're headed. Okay, so let's look at part of the uh, passage we did not read. So up at verse 11, where the parable starts, so if you're not familiar with the parable or you don't have the bad religion album, <laughs> tune in. Luke says this, he, "'And he said, Jesus is speaking.'" There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. I'm pretty sure right here, Jesus paused. And we're going to pause for a minute for an additional reason, and that is this. We really need to soak in the context of what's going on here. Because if we read this, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and we use our 21st century Western American culture thinking, we're going to go, yeah, okay, a son wanted part of his inheritance. We see this all the time. You know, and Some of you are maybe too young to remember the Paris Hilton years when she was in the news all the time and spending her wealth and reckless living and all of this kind of stuff. But if we look back at at the culture, remember Jesus is speaking in the first century, and when he says something, he's speaking to an audience that shares values that he knows, that shares the cultural experience that he knows. So if we are really going to appreciate what he's saying, we've got to do a little extra work. Let me Let me give you... An example that happened this week that might help get this point across. On Wednesday, I made a post on Facebook. Two things about that: I very rarely post on Facebook. I'm, I'm a lurker or stalker. What's the what's? There's a term that I am that I just look at stuff and I don't put stuff on. Right. Secondly, if you've tried to friend me on Facebook and I haven't friended you back, OCD. I have a limited number of people. You have to wait till someone drops off before you're in. I'm sorry. Okay, so I post this on Facebook. Ready? Why can't our quarterback have a herniated disc? All right, a couple of you. How many of you are completely lost? What is he talking about? Okay, quick lesson. There are two big football games today. One is the Philadelphia Eagles at the Dallas Cowboys. Winner goes to the playoff, loser goes home. The Dallas Cowboys quarterback is Tony Romo. His stats are great. I know he throws these ridiculous interceptions at the worst time, but he's a good quarterback. He has a, herni- a herniated disc. He's not playing. Cowboys fans are upset. I am a Chicago Bears fan. What? <laughs> the Bears play today. Game, if they win, they go to the playoffs. If they lose, they go home. We have a quarterback. His name's Jay Cutler. He's got a rocket arm, but his head's, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of our quarterback. However, he missed five games this year and our backup quarterback, Josh McCown, a follower of Jesus Christ, by the way, got to be a fan of any Christian athletes, it's a rule, <laughs> did really good. So if our quarterback got hurt, we'd have him. So when I posted, why can't our quarterback have a herniated disc, my family knew immediately what I was talking about. I was saying, I I wasn't hoping for ill will for a human being. I was saying, I want a different quarterback. Okay, same thing with Jesus. Okay, when he said this, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, I am sure he had to pause because there was murmuring. There was people going, yeah, right. There was somebody holding, I don't know, a cup or a flask or whatever they held back in those days who was about to take a sip, and they heard Jesus say that, and they went, <laughs> because a son did not ask for his inheritance before his father was dead in the first century. This was outrageous. Okay, this was equivalent to the son saying, I would rather you were dead so I could have the stuff that I'm deserving. This was a huge sign of disrespect. He would rather think of his father as dead and get the wealth, then respect his father. So after the pause, what does Jesus say? And he divided his property between them. Even more outrageous. But there's no question that Jesus was an excellent communicator. He, people gathered to hear him, and certainly the message was key a message of the kingdom of God is near their salvation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he still, I bet he just was a speaker that just riveted his audience. And I'm sure what he did was use language that the people understood. I grew up in an era, like I said, in the 60s, the era of bad Jesus movies. Okay? There's a new, have you seen there's a new movie coming out called Son of God? I saw the previews. I'm worried. Do you get worried when Hollywood portrays our Savior again? Okay. Back in the 60s, I mean, Jesus was always this very flat, you know, blessed be the peacemakers. It's was like, you know, I'm sure he was far more charismatic in his speaking than that. And if he were to say this line, okay, we had the pause, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Pause. And he divided his property between them. What? He would have said it like that. He would have used today's language. Because this was outrageous. Think about, well, maybe you don't understand. Let's put you in the first century culture. Today, if a son were to ask that and a father were to grant his wish, the father would call up a stockbroker, right? Sell some stock, sell some bonds, go to the bank and get some money out. In the first century, a man's wealth was in his property, was in his asset, in his cattle, in his livestock. So for this father to grant this wish, he's going to have to sell a third of everything he owns, of his land, of his livestock, everything. Because the younger son was entitled to a third of the wealth. The eldest son always got a double share. This man would have to disrupt his life in order to meet his son's request. And then what happens? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. We can assume drinking. Later, as we saw, his brother refers to prostitutes, games of chance, who knows what all. So we have a son who has requested of his father, I want mine, even if it means thinking of you as dead. Let's go look at the older son. Verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command." Now, some presentations would have this as being the good son. And I'm sure the great theologian, Lee Corso, would have to say, not so fast. okay?" Because if we look at what this son is saying, my first reaction is, when I see I never disobeyed your command, is, yeah, really? Your whole life, right? Complete compliance with your father's request. I'm reminded of the rich young ruler that Jesus talks to, right? Who says, how do I get to the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, first... You know, do not steal, do not commit adultery, obey. All. And, the, and the rich young ruler says, I've done all of these. And remember, Jesus doesn't question him on it. Because his next question is to the heart of the matter. Sell all your wealth and follow me. He knew what the young man's idol was. But when I read this, okay, so we're going to give, we're going to let this go. We're going to assume this son, by and large, obeyed his father, was respectful to his father. But what does he say? Look. A son in first century Middle Eastern culture does not go to his father. And I'm sure he pointed a finger. Say, look, complete sign of disrespect. I never disobeyed your command. He's presenting his credentials. Look what I have done. Look how good I have been. And then when we, read, we read on. We see the motivation. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You never gave me what I earned. You never gave me what I deserve. I have rights. This son was just as disrespectful to his father as the younger son. His conduct was not aimed at being an obedient son, but getting what he thought he deserved. Both sons have disrespected their father. Both sons want the same thing the father's wealth, and not the father. Both have the same heart, rebellious against the father. Both sons are lost. So why the two sons in this parable? Who is this lesson directed at? Look all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 15. And that's when this section opens up. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then there are three parables. The one we're looking at is the third of the three. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. Probably familiar to those of us who who have been following Christ for a while, right? A shepherd loses one sheep, leaves the 99, goes and gets the one. And then Jesus leaves no question as to what the point is. At the end of the parable, he says this, Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he goes to the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. Woman loses a coin, searches diligently all day to find the coin, just so we don't miss the point. At the end of the parable, Jesus says... Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now to the recently renamed parable of two sons and a father. Who is he talking to? He told that he's speaking to the Pharisees. Now, is there a message in the parable of the prodigal son for returning after being rebellious against our father? Sure. But the real message... It's about the older son, about those who feel they are so self-righteous that they, that they can earn their way into heaven, but who are just as lost. Now, we haven't gotten to my point yet. What's Jesus teaching? Well, one of the things is, is what we just said, that we can repent of our waywardness and return to the Father. Great point, not the point I want to make today. We can look at this parable and we can learn that you can't get to God by being the elder brother, by doing good works and having a a desperately lost heart. But that's not the point I want to make today. Jesus is telling us that no matter where we are, there's forgiveness, there's salvation. But that's not the point I want to make today. Let's go back to verse 20b, where we started earlier. It says this, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, how is an elderly patriarch going to see his son coming from a long way off? He's going to be watching for him. And I bet when that father saw that son a long way off, he recognized him immediately off on that far hill in his walk. My son Brian, a couple months ago, uh, ran a marathon for the first time. And while he was running this marathon, Jane and Jackson and my sister were getting in my car and going to various places on the route and watching him go by and cheering him on Then going to another place on the route. When we got to the last place, we were going to watch him. We were on Meridian Street looking back several blocks up the hill to, to the bridge that goes over Fall Creek. And Brian had red on. So every time, and every runner had red on for some reason that day. And every time a runner with red would come around that corner and we'd see him up at the top, you know, it would, is that is that no yeah, I, I, Oh, that's not him. The moment he actually came around that corner like that, that's him. Because we were watching for him. I was expecting him, and I knew him when I recognized him. And then what did the father do? And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. First century patriarchs did not run. It was undignified. They did not go out to others. Others came to him. In order for him to run, he would have to lift up his robe and expose those skinny old man legs. You know what I'm talking about. You've been to the beach in Florida. (laughs) And run to his son. And then what did he do? He embraced him. Not they embraced each other. The father embraced the son. And then what happens? We're going to skip down a little bit. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, what we didn't read is that after the reckless living, the son is broke, he is living in the mud with the swine, he comes up with a plan. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to ask him to make me a hired hand. And uh, we've talked periodically about slavery in the first century and how people would sell themselves and earn themselves out of slavery. So this patriarch probably had slaves who lived on the property, but he also had hired men who came in from town who he paid. So the son's plan... Involves making restitution. Here's my plan. I'm going to go back to dad. I'm going to ask him to hire me. I'm going to earn money. I'm going to take care of myself. And I'm going to earn enough to pay him back for what I have done. But before the son can lay out his plans, the father will hear none of it. He takes his son back. He doesn't need a plan of restitution. He welcomes him because that son says, I have sinned against you. And what does he do? He puts the best robe. Well, who's going to have the best robe? Dad's robe. He puts dad's robe on the boy. And he says, we're going to celebrate. God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any kind of sin. What about the older brother? Skip down to verse 27. Sulking, his younger brother's come home. He feels like he's been cheated. He's the quote, unquote, good son. Verse 27, his father came out. His father's hosting a party. His father has killed a calf. His father has invited the entire community. You just don't kill a calf and, you know, eat one family's worth in store it. We don't have refrigeration. We're inviting the community. And we're inviting the community because my son was lost and now he's found. He's hosting a big party. He's got responsibility. He leaves the party, seeks out the eldest son came to the son and and entreated him, he pled with his son. The patriarch does not do this. This father has broken every rule of being a first century patriarch, of being a first century father, to go out and get his sons. That is the point I want to make. That is the realization that in looking at this parable over the last couple of months that came to me, that has, has caused me to step up my ability to preach the gospel to myself, is that whether you are the wayward son who pursued sensuality and, and the pleasures of this life, or you're the self-righteous son who thinks he has earned his way, it doesn't matter. Our Father came for us, and he came for us first. He didn't wait for me to get cleaned up. He didn't say, I'll talk to you a little later when you've made restitution. He first came and got me. And what's interesting is, in this parable, because Jesus is such a brilliant teacher, he contrasts the older brother with our true elder brother, Jesus Christ. What did the older brother do when his younger brother went off spending money on prostitutes and drinking and games of chance and who knows what else? He stayed home. Surely, over that period of time, he got some word about his brother. Did he go and help seek his brother? Did he go bring his brother back? No. But our true elder brother did. So, while we were still rejecting him, before the younger son even came home, while the older son was still claiming he deserved things, God first came for us. We saw it earlier in Romans. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in doing so, he had to humble himself. He had to raise up his robe, show the skinny old man legs, and run out. He had to leave the party he was the dignified host of, To come and get us. Paul would write in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. By taking the form of the servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And lastly. When he came to get us. There was no price too high. He sacrificed his land. When his son requested it. He put on the best robe when his son came back. He told the eldest son, I know you've always been with me. All that I have is yours. He paid the price. And at the end of that Philippians passage, Paul writes, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even on the cross. Jesus kind of leaves us hanging at the end. Because right where we ended reading, that's that, we do not know what the elder son does. We know what the younger son does. He comes back. He's welcomed back into the family. He's repentant. But the older son, we walk away thinking. Now, if you look ahead in the next chapter of Scripture, Jesus tells one more parable. He tells it to his disciples. But then in verse 14, Luke records this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Apparently, it's pretty tough to be the older brother and see the error of your ways and come back. The important point is this. Our father still comes after us today. And as I was studying this and thinking about this, I had this realization that it was kind of uncomfortable. I'm both sons. There's been a time in my life... I'll be all right in a second. Don't I know it. Well, I bet I could challenge that younger son for for his lifestyle. We won't go into details. I know there's times now where, uh, kind of like the Pharisee and the tax collector who were praying, and the tax collector is praying, you know, forgive me, and the Pharisee's praying, thank God I'm not the tax collector. Been that guy. But our Father came for us. And He came for you as well. And if you're here and you haven't responded to that, you're here probably because He's calling to you. He's coming to you. So, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond like the Pharisees and be in the camp who think they don't need a Savior and ridicule Him? Or are you going to come and join the celebration? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you uh, just for the beauty of your word, for the depth of your word, for the power of your word, for how you teach us and convict us and how your word can just go to our heart. It leads us. Father, I just ask that uh, we would just always in the front of our minds remember that you came for us. You came for us first before we did anything. You came for us even though we were still rejecting you, even though we were still in sin. You came to us in our self-righteousness. And Father, uh, I just ask that our hearts would be continually pierced by that knowledge, uh, by your love for us, by the uh, realization of the grace that you have given us, that you have forgiven us, Father. Lord, we just thank you for that grace.